John's time with Jesus and draw out one major principle that John is gleaning from his time with Jesus. So three different passages, three different experiences, three different moments, one major principle. And we're going to start in the book of John, chapter 9, verse 35. And just really quick, here's some background. When we get to the verse 35, here's what's happening. So at this point, for John, as a disciple of Jesus, he's been with Jesus for about a couple years now. So he's had a couple years of being able to follow Jesus, learn from Jesus with the other disciples. And this story at verse 35 picks up. There was an exchange that happened with, uh, with the group, including some Pharisees. And these Pharisees had just previously, before this verse, had accused a man who was healed of blindness. He accused him of heresy, being a sinner. They threw him out of the synagogue. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 35. What happened was that this man who had been born blind and had become a beggar, he was, uh, he was healed by Jesus. And, and what's amazing to me about this story is that when he doesn't even know who Jesus is, and he never even asks Jesus to heal him. Jesus is walking by this man, and he's with his disciples. And the text says that Jesus used it as an, as an opportunity to be able to teach his disciples. And for all of us, as we're familiar with Jesus and his character and nature, there's compassion there, too, for that blind man. Jesus chose to heal him. So if you remember the account, he, uh, he takes mud and he puts it on the blind man's eyes. And then he encourages the blind man. He, he, he commands him to go to the pool of Siloam and then to wash off that mud. So the blind beggar does as Jesus says. He listens to Jesus. He does as Jesus says. He goes, he washes off the mud, and he can see. And this causes all kinds of, of a commotion with the people because this guy was known in that community. So the people didn't know what to make of this, what to think about this, and um, they could not wrap their minds around it. The problem was within that community is that this happened during the Sabbath. So those who were in that community took him to the Pharisees, where he was questioned. And it's in the synagogue that there's this major hubbub that's happening with the religious leaders because Jesus violated their religious tradition. And there's disagreement. And one of the, uh, one of the religious leaders said, this Jesus cannot be from God because he doesn't keep our traditions. And then the blind man was accused of being a sinner. You were born a sinner. Um, Jesus was accused of being a sinner. And the man who was blind replied, I, I don't know whether he, he's a sinner. <laughs> All I know is that I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do? They asked. How did he heal you? And he said, look, I, I already told you 
Were you listening? And then here's the coup de grace right here, right? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> and that just, that's just set them over the edge. They became indignant. They were offended. They were insulted. They were threatened. And so as a response, they cursed that man. And they threw him out of the synagogue. And so what we're learning about these shepherds, right, because when the religious leaders of that day, the, the people in the synagogue were the flock and the religious leaders were the shepherds. What we're learning about the worldview of these shepherds is that among many other things, their worldview was self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And so they threw out the man who has healed the blindness. And that's where we pick up in verse 35. Follow along with me here. When Jesus heard what had happened, this is so sweet, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him. Jesus said. This one of the first things, one of the first sights that this man saw was Jesus. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. It's like Jesus was saying, don't worry about what they say. Remain in me and let my words remain in you. Verse 38. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. And John is observing all of this that's happening with the crowd. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. And then he continues in verse 1 of chapter 10, I tell you the truth. Now, let me tell you what the truth is here. I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of the sheepfold, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. In other words, the thief and robber being those who would impose self-righteousness any other way into the sheepfold outside of Jesus, the gate. Verse 2, but the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them. And 
they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, and that included John as well, probably. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who, come bef- all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. There's no other way. There's no other way. They will come and go freely and will find good pasture. Verse 10, the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And then the very beginning of the next verse, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. What were they hearing as he's in the midst of these shepherds in that moment, addressing what had happened with the blind beggar and speaking truth. I am the good shepherd. So Jesus is using the circumstances of the blind beggar and the reaction of the religious leaders to warn about self-righteousness, any other way that we would try to get into the sheepfold outside of the gate, and to encourage them to follow his voice. He's saying, remain in me. Let my words remain in you. Remain in me. Let my words remain in you. So we're going to flash forward. This is the second passage. We're going to flash forward uh, possibly several months later. This is in John chapter 21. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 21. And this account picks up shortly after, maybe a, a week or two after Jesus is raised from the dead. So if you can imagine in this time in John chapter 21, the last few weeks for the disciples has been this major roller coaster ride. It has been crazy. I mean, crazy. And so from the eyes of John, it started, those three weeks started at Palm Sunday when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, the foal, and people are singing his praises, laying palm branches down, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the thinking is that this is the moment that Jesus takes his, his rightful reign and establishes his kingdom in this city of Jerusalem. And so there was even a moment when, um, I don't know if James and John had their mom up to this or if their mom had this idea, but if you remember in the text, their mom comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, hey, you know, when you take your reign in Jerusalem, can we have, can my son James and my son John, can they sit on your right and your left-hand side when you're reigning in your kingdom? Their paradigm about the, the kingdom coming to earth was different. They had this expectation. So then they, there's Passover when Jesus serves them and washes their feet, and he tells them of the greater way, that the least will become the greatest and the greatest least. And then he shares with them that he's not going to be with them much longer. So there's all this like back and forth. 
And then he tells them that somebody within the room is going to betray him. And John is watching as Jesus invites them to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and is languished. He watches as Jesus is arrested as one of the, of the very 12 disciples betrays him with a kiss. He watches as Jesus is brought into the synagogue, as the religious leaders blindfold him, they question him, they smack him, they spit on him. He's watching Jesus be treated like that. He sees Peter completely come undone because Peter has denied Jesus three times and he realizes that. And he watches Jesus be tortured. He watches Jesus take the cross on the Via Della Rosa. He's there when Jesus is crucified. He's there when Jesus says to John and I think to James or somebody else in the group that behold your mother, Mary, and, and basically charges them to be able to take care of his mom. Um, he's there when the stone is put on the tomb. Um, he's there when Mary, the two Marys come racing over to where they're meeting and tells them, the tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. He's there when he and Peter race back over to the tomb to check it out and see if it's empty. And by the way, um, it's, John makes it very clear in John, twice he says that he beat Peter in that race. So I think it's really funny. So if you've looked at that in chapter 20, he says it, he says it one time, he gets over there first, and then the second time he's already investigated the tomb and everything before Peter gets there. So he almost one-ups him. But um, So he sees the empty tomb, um, then there are two miraculous appearances of Jesus afterward. They're in the room, and he just appears. And there's a, there's just, it's just been a roller coaster ride. It's so hard to understand and make, a, make sense of what's going on. So in chapter 21, my belief is these guys decide they're going to go fishing, right? So my belief is they are fishermen. They're trying to find something to make sense of. For any of us, when the world is going crazy, a lot of times we try to go to things that make sense. And so my guess is that that's what they're doing. But regardless, we find in chapter 21, um, and read with me here in verse 1. We find out that this takes place at the Sea of Galilee, and it says this is how it happened. In verse 2, several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Insult to injury. And also very reminiscent of an account that happened three years earlier as well. At dawn, Jesus was standing, verse 4, on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, hey guys, our fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And he said, throw your net on the right 
side of the boat, and you'll get some. So you know how your net is on the left side of the boat? Just pull that baby up and put it on the right side of the boat. (laughs) We've been fishing all night. What are you talking about? Put it on the right side of the boat, and you'll get some. And what happened? So they did. They followed his voice. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, who's John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he'd stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to the shore. I'm convinced he's just, he's just not even thinking at this point. He just wants to get over there, right? Um, I don't know why he would put on his tunic to jump in the water. I, but I think if I was in that moment, I would just be, uh, you know. And, and so that's what I imagine that he's doing at that point. And he's swimming to shore with the tunic. The others, verse 8, stayed in the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. And of all things, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. That's sweet. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net had not torn. The previous time, and I don't know, I don't want to speculate, but it's just very interesting to me that the Holy Spirit would go into lengths through John to put in here that the, that the net had not torn. You know, the first time that this happened a few years earlier when Jesus was calling the disciples, the fishermen, the net tore when they hauled in the fish, and this time it didn't. It says, and yet the net did not tear. And so I think that's interesting. Here's the thing that blows me away about this story. There are so many things in this that are just really rich. But the thing that, the, the thing that really blows me away about this is that you know, what changed from the moment the disciples head out to fish to that point in the early hours of the morning when they had caught nothing and Jesus, and then all of a sudden they brought in that huge net. What changed from the moment they set out to fish to the moment when they hauled in that huge net? What changed? Because if you think about it, they're on the the same lake, uh, same weather conditions, same time of the year, same season, same people, same resources, same net, same experience, um, same fish underneath the boat. There's only one thing that changed in that story. There's one thing that changed in that story. And it was that Jesus spoke. And they listened to his voice. They followed his voice. That was the one thing that changed. And then everything changed, right? Jesus spoke, and they followed his voice. And everything changed. Circumstances were the same. But everything changed. So what is John learning here? What was John learning? What is Jesus teaching John? And what is Jesus now teaching us? And it's the same message that Jesus shared with John, which will be our third passage. 
The same message he shared with John and the other disciples just a few weeks before. And it's this. It's remain in me. Let my words remain in you, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing apart from me. Remain in me. Let my words remain in you. So look with me there. John chapter 15. This is the third passage. John chapter 15. Again, this is just a few weeks earlier. This is during Passover. It's just a few weeks earlier. John chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Jesus said, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by my message, by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So John is learning that all he's being commanded to do is remain in Jesus. That's it. I believe all that we are commanded to do as children of God is to remain in Jesus. So now flash forward, kind of going, this is like an episode of The Flash, time travel and stuff here. Um, Flash forward, now, several months ahead, and what we'll find is that this is after Jesus has ascended. He's given the Great Commission. Disciples have gone out. They've made disciples. There have been numbers added to their community daily. Um, Pentecost has happened. All these things have happened. And now, John is standing with Peter before religious leaders after being arrested, of all things, for teaching about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And we find in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, this is the response of the Pharisees, or excuse me, it was the um, Sanhedrin at this point in time, the religious leaders. They said, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And what? They took note that these men had been with Jesus. So how do we remain in Jesus? Um, I'm sure there are many ways to answer this question, uh, but I want to suggest one that I think is the, I believe is the most powerful and the most practical way to remain in Jesus, and that's this. It's to pray Scripture. Pray scripture. Pray the word of God. Pray scripture. Now let me build my case here. Jesus is the human form of the written word. We know that because we see in John chapter 1, verses 1, and then in verses 14, as well as many other places in the Bible, it says, In the beginning, the word, logos, 
already existed. The Word was with God, and guess what? The Word was God. Verse 14, so the Word became human, flesh, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So the written word, the Bible, is the expression of the living word, Jesus. And all that is, all, all of the written word points to Jesus. We know this. It was in John chapter 5, verse 39. Again, Jesus is talking to religious leaders. He says this. He says, you know, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And then in Luke 24, if you remember those, the, the guys traveling down the road to Emmaus, and they're walking and they're discussing all that's been going on. This is right after uh, they had heard all the reports of the crucifixion, and then they heard all the reports of the resurrection, and they just, they're talking, talking, and, and then this mysterious figure joins their group, and it's Jesus, and he's asking them what they're you know, what's going on? And they're like, where have you been? Like, this is the talk. Did you not know what's going on? I mean, this is, like, the whole world is a buzz of what's happening with this. And Jesus uses that as a teaching opportunity. And it says here in Luke 24, 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So how do we remain in Jesus? I believe we pray scripture. The most practical answer to that question is pray scripture. And it's simply this. Let scripture guide your prayer time. Let scripture facilitate your prayers. Respond directly with the written word in your prayers. So, taking scripture, reading it through, and then just praying through that. Coming to God first with what he wants and then bringing in what you want into that rather than coming in first with what you want and then going into scripture or where else afterward. But go into scripture first and then let that facilitate your dialogue with God. Let that take you into the places of prayer, into communication with God. Let it start with scripture. Use scripture to facilitate, to guide your prayer times. The more you pray scripture, the better you will be at discerning Jesus' voice. Guarantee it. This is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in uh, one of his books called Psalms, the prayer book. I think, Carolyn, I think you were the one who gave me that book. Yeah. Just remembered it right now as I said that. I'm like, that was a really good book. Everybody should read that book. But you only have one copy, so we can't like pass it around to everybody. Psalms colon the prayer book of the Bible. Amazon. We're not associated or affiliated with Amazon, nor have money been exchanged in this process. The expressed views and consents of in your Christian community are not anyway. So um yeah, it's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anyway, this is the quote that just, just hammers it home to me. 
If we wish to pray with confidence and gladness, then the words of the Holy Scriptures will have to be the solid basis of our prayer. For here we know that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, teaches us to pray. The words that come from God that become then, these words of Scripture, then the steps on which we find our way to God. And isn't prayer all about knowing Jesus better, knowing God more? finding our way, our steps to God. I'm convinced the most powerful practice we can incorporate into our lives is to pray scripture. So really quick, how do we do that? There are so many different ways, and I just would love to be able to share a couple practical ways that that I've tried. Um, And there are so many other ways that I'm sure that if we took time within the congregation to share ideas, we'd have a whole list. But let me just give you a few uh, perhaps when you're reading scripture in the morning or whenever you read scripture, if there's a verse or a passage that really sticks out to you, perhaps you would take a, you know, a four by six card or a three by five card. I like the four by six. It's a little bit bigger, right? More space. So take, the, take that card, that index card, and, and write that out and then bring that with you wherever you go. Um, maybe take a walk with it. And then as you're reading it, you just, you're just responding to God. Um, my guess is that the things that you would have brought to your prayer time will come out regardless when you're responding in, through the word. It'll just be aligned and shaped better. And my guess also is there will be things that you would not have thought to talk with God about that will come out because you're responding to his scripture areas that he wants to shine a light on or he wants to encourage you with or maybe a, just a random thought that creeps in and you're like, well, how, this is a tangent, but how does it connect, God? How does it connect? And then you go with that tangent and say, what are you trying to speak to me with that? But it starts with scripture there. So write in an index card and bring it with you. Um, in the car, when you're at work, if you take a five-minute break or uh, whatever you're doing, just have that with you. A journal. So um, what I've been doing with my journal recently, when I was in college and they taught us about journaling, they didn't really explain how you can journal. So I just was writing down things I did during the day. It was, that was basically what my journal was. And then I stopped because I'm like, this is, I don't like this. I don't enjoy this. I, I went to Burger King. That, great. I was with there with my friends. And I didn't know what journaling was. So what I've found to be really rich now in my journaling time is that when I read the word, I will write down a verse or a passage that really stands out. And then I'll just respond in prayer. Um, in my journal, I'll just talk directly to God with my pen. And it's super helpful for me. One of the things that Pastor Mike had shared over a year ago that has been extremely life-giving to me is that he said that he has two journals with him in the morning. One is the one he's writing on today, and the other is last year's journal entry, and he reads that. And I'm like, that is so great. So now I'm, I'm actually, this year, I'm, I've got my two journals, which is great, and it's been awesome. So it's really great to read, you know, how, you know, what are you asking, what are you communicating to God in that season at that time the year before? Um, pray with your, uh, ways to pray scripture with your families. One of the things that I don't do as often as I'd like, 
Um, but it's really helpful when I, I am able to do this with our kids. We pray with our kids, tuck them in, and then pray with them each night. And when I'm, when I'm just praying with, my, with um, my kids, if I do that every day, a lot of times I just say the same thing. You know, all of a sudden it becomes now it's like it's canonized. <laughs> you know, it's like here's the paragraph prayer that you pray for your child. When, but if I, if I am intentional and I take scripture beforehand and I think of the script, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and at bedtime I say, God, please help Ethan to trust you more and more um, with all of his heart not to be leaning on his own understanding, but in all of his ways that he would start acknowledging you and that you'd be gracious to direct his paths in that process. So now what I'm doing is it's, I'm aligning with God's will in my prayers. I'm praying over my child's scripture and, and they're receiving that as well, you know? So that's one idea with it. Maybe it's your grandchild that you would do that with, you know? Um, if your kid is in college, that gets a little bit strange. I don't know how you do that during bedtime, but, you know, tuck them in, read scripture. Um, get out of my dorm. <laughs> um, find a key passage of scripture from your time here on the weekend that Pastor Chris or another um, teacher is sharing. Maybe there's one passage that stands out. And you just take that with you, and you'd pray that throughout the week. Take a psalm, which is, is a prayer book, and just verse by verse. You take the first verse, that's the psalmist's prayer, and then you let that facilitate your prayer time. Maybe you paraphrase it in your own words, or maybe you just respond to it. But just take one at a time, take verse by verse. Um, with your community group, uh, maybe during prayer times, rather than having everybody share their prayer requests and then everybody going around in a circle, maybe you bring a scripture and you have somebody read it, and then you just have the group respond. And I'm, I'm guaranteeing that some of these prayer requests that we would share would probably come up in that time anyway. But you're starting with scripture and breathing life into it. Um, that's another idea. And there, there are probably many, many, many more that we can talk about, but hopefully those are some starting places or some um, extra ammo for you as you're going through that, but some ideas of how to practice praying scripture. But again, I'm convinced though, Jesus says, Jesus' message is that the only thing I'm calling you to do is to remain in me. Let my words remain in you. Remain in me. Let my words remain in, in you. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So let's be people who remain in Jesus. Let his words guide our lives. Um, I'm going to invite Lisa and the worship team to come on up. And we're going to enter into a time of communion. Another way we practice remaining in Jesus is through the regular pattern of taking communion together with the other body, with the, with the body of believers. And here at the Vineyard, we do this weekly. And we invite anyone who professes faith in Jesus as Lord to partake at any of the stations in the room. We have one in the back, one in the front, a gluten-free station in the middle on the side.
by eating the bread, symbolizing Jesus' body broken for us, and drinking the juice, symbolizing his blood shed for us. At any time in the next few songs as we sing, we invite you to come on up. And if there's somebody you'd like to invite to come up with you, then that would be great too, to do that together. We invite you to do that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.